Greetings and salutations from Times Square, crossroads of the world. This is the Muni Lowdown, produced by DebtWire Municipals, where we talk about this week's most interesting stories in the municipal bond market. And I am your host, Young Lim, desk editor at DebtWire Municipals. Good morning. Today is Tuesday, July 21st, 2020. We've got an analyst snapshot and an article based on an online virtual conference. First up, the fiscal plan for the Puerto Rico Electric Power Authority, better known as PREPA, released a fiscal plan by Puerto Rico's Financial Oversight Management Board, the FOMB, on June 29th. It does little to advance the restructuring or to provide useful information about it. In fact, the plan's debt sustainability analysis, for instance, counts for only one half page of an 89-page document. DebtWire's Municipal's head of research, Greg Clark, gives us his take on the fiscal plans. Next up. Municipalities that file for Chapter 9 bankruptcy protections in the years following the Great Recession tended to see improved public safety outcomes compared with similarly situated jurisdictions, a trend that could have wider implications for public service delivery under municipal bankruptcy. Researchers for St. John's University and Arizona University said during an online conference that why our municipal's Chuck Stanley explains the outcomes for us. All right. Good morning, Greg Clark. How are you, sir? I'm good, Young. How are you? All right. Another day, another dollar. So I'll give or take. Hey, how come? How come I'm getting top billing this week? Did I? Did I? Uh, did I do something? <laughs> Usually, I get second billing. You know, I'm. The, I don't know if that's good or bad. <laughs> well, you know, I like to mix it up. You know, people are expecting you to. You know, you're not the opening act. You were the headliner, but I figured this way. You know, mix it up a little bit, right? Okay. I, I, I take solace in the fact that uh, Jimi Hendrix was once the warm-up act for the monkeys. <laughs> if anybody remembers the monkeys. Well, I sure do, but that's a very interesting factoid. Wow, that's who would have thought, yep. right? Yep. Who would have thought? Yeah, that's right. All right, Greg. As always, welcome to the show. And you're here to talk about your insightful analyst snapshot and specifically about the Puerto Rico Electric Power Authority better known by its acronym as PREPA. And the fiscal plan that was recently approved by the uh, Puerto Rico's Financial Oversight and Management Board, also known as FOMB. So Greg, go ahead, it's all yours. Thanks, Young. On July 13th, we published our research that evaluated PREPA's fiscal plan and some other aspects of its operations. And this was the second of four comments that we've published or plan to publish on the fiscal plans of Puerto Rico borrowers. Uh, to give people an idea what the fiscal plans are, they're supposed to be long-range planning documents. Uh, they are, uh, I think they're mandated under, under the, uh, under the, at least under the rules of the FOMB uh, in order to make sure that uh, Puerto Rico borrowers are uh, going to emerge from bankruptcy with uh, with a healthy financial outlook, or as healthy as they can, as everyone can make it. So the first uh, was on the Commonwealth, which went out on July 8th. PREPA, as I just noted, on the 13th, the Puerto Rico Aqueduct and Sewer Authority, or PRASA, uh, yesterday, Monday the 20th. And the final one will be on the Puerto Rico Highways and Transportation Authority. Well, you know, Greg, you mentioned, you mentioned a good point. We brought you up first because, as they say, time is money. So let's get right to PREPA, if you don't mind. All right. It's a deal. Well, the, the fiscal plan for 
PREPA didn't do a whole lot, doesn't do a whole lot to advance PREPA's debt restructuring or to provide useful information about it, about PREPA. The debt, I should say about the restructuring, uh, some information, some useful information about PREPA. Um, now the restructuring is important because without it, PREPA can't emerge from bankruptcy. To give you an idea of the plan's weaknesses, there's what's called a debt sustainability analysis that's intended to show the reader how much debt PREPA can support, but it accounts for only half a page of an 89-page document. Now, a debt sustainability analysis, in my experience, should be a little bit more extensive than that. It should have some, some more detail that's than you can fit on a half a page. I mean, the whole idea here is that we're trying to see how they're going to emerge from bankruptcy and how they're going to meet their capital needs after they emerge from bankruptcy, and that's not in here. Um, the, uh, the, another way to put it is that the prospective debt figures and the debt sustainability analysis don't indicate that they're related in any way to an expected amount of restructured, restructured debt or to prep its future capital needs. It's also inadequate, the debt analysis that is, in that it uses terms such as net revenues and cash flow interchangeably. But these terms represent two different accounting concepts. I won't go into the accounting protocols here, but they are two entirely different things. I see. So then what are your conclusions after you review the document? Well, I've, I've got two. One, the person or people who assembled the document didn't have skills that were relevant to the task at hand. And second, the oversight board who approved the plan either didn't notice these shortcomings or didn't care to have them corrected before they approved the plan. Interesting. Well, then, what else do we know about PREPA from your report and other recent events? Well, at the time we published, PREPA's plans to exit bankruptcy were in limbo. Well, they're still in limbo, actually, but there's more detail now. Uh, hearings on its debt restructuring plan had been recently delayed by the U.S. District Court that oversees the bankruptcy. And on July 14th, PREPA's director, a gentleman by the name of Jose Ortiz, said he didn't foresee the restructuring occurring until at least next year because officials don't know yet if consumers can afford it. So again, it looks like the restructuring, his term was at until at least next year. So it's, a, it's an open bet on, on, on to when it will occur. Um, regarding PREPA itself, aside from its bankruptcy and restructuring that is, uh, there was a 60 to 70% decline earlier this year in PREPA's collections. And due to economic conditions, mostly due to uh, COVID-19, PREPA's residential customers who are in arrears on their payments can't have their service cut off. There was some good news for PREPA last month when it was announced that Luma Energy, L-U-M-A Energy, was named as recipient of a 15-year contract to modernize and manage the utilities transmission and distribution system. Loom is a joint venture of two companies, Quanta Services and Atco Limited. Uh, I had never heard of these companies before. That doesn't mean a whole lot because I don't, I don't spend all my time in the, in the electric sector. But from what I could find about them, they appear to be pretty substantial companies. 
Uh, the Luma contract does face possible opposition from Puerto Rico Senate, and it was also challenged, the contract was challenged, challenged on July 2nd by PREPA's largest labor union, the Union of Workers of the Electricity and Irrigation Industry. Among the union's complaints is that its members are not guaranteed continued employment by Luma, and to, to put a, an exclamation point on that sentence, uh, to prove that point, uh, the union held a 24-hour strike about a week ago. So that's, uh, that's the PREPA report for this week. Very interesting. And like you were saying, it, that when they mentioned the debt sustainment analysis, which is only a half a page, I mean, that, that alone should just tell you there's no, there's nothing there. That's out of an 89-page document. I, I agree. It's, it's, it's just, just wasn't useful. <laughs> well, Greg, uh, let's see, like you said, so you've done the Commonwealth, PREPA was this week. Next week, we look forward to PRASA, I believe. Yes, and again, if you'll have me back. Well, that's the question. Well, I'll have to flip a coin to see if you're the headliner or the opening act, so stay tuned. Well, I'm, I'm glad to be here in either role. Okay. All right, Greg, stay safe out there, and thanks for your time today. Thanks, Young. Take Bye. care. All right. Good morning, Chuck Stanley in Washington, D.C. How are you, sir? I'm doing well. How about yourself? Not too bad. Thanks for calling in. Uh, today, you'll be talking about a new study that suggests governments that file for Chapter 9 bankruptcy may see improved public safety, safety outcomes compared to troubled municipalities that did not file. So, Chuck, tell us a little bit about the study that uh, you wrote about. Sure. Uh, this study is by researchers at St. John's University and Arizona State University, and it was presented at the Brookings Institution's annual municipal finance conference, which was held online this year due to COVID-19 concerns. The authors of the study really tried to drill down on this issue of service solvency during municipal bankruptcy processes. So how well do governments that restructure their obligations under Chapter 9 bankruptcy maintain essential public services? This is an issue we hear talked about a lot in restructuring situations because of the obvious public interest in making sure people maintain access to essential government services, but also because bondholders know that any agreement they make to restructure debt obligations over 10, 20, 30 years is going to be contingent on the public entity's ability to keep delivering services over that time. If the government can't deliver services, people are going to move away, and pretty soon there's no tax base, no revenue for debt service, and everybody's going to find themselves back at the negotiating table sooner or later. So in this case, the research is focused on law enforcement outcomes, and they said that was because that was the public service metric that got the most attention as a point of concern during bankruptcy hearings. So they compared crime rates, arrest rates, crime clearance rates in municipalities that filed for Chapter 9 over a five-year period after the Great Recession, and they compared that with control groups of five similarly situation municipalities. And what they found was that trends in crime rates for the cities and counties remained comparable, but the Chapter 9 municipalities showed more arrests for violent crime and more crime solved than their financially stressed counterparts. Uh, there was about an 8% increase in crime clearance in the municipalities that filed for Chapter 9, even though public safety in those places was cut, public safety spending. Uh, they argue that this shows that the measurable service output from police departments under bankruptcy actually increased despite those budget cuts. 
Interesting. And like you said, without the tax base, there's really nothing. So what and what did the researchers attribute the change to that you, you, you were mentioning? Well, the study doesn't really examine the causes behind the change in outcomes, just the correlation with filing for bankruptcy, but it does offer some possible reasons. Uh, the suggestion seems to be that policymakers operating under bankruptcy conditions have the latitude and the incentive to improve operational efficiency, either by targeting unnecessary spending or pursuing innovative approaches to policing. The authors also said that focusing budget cuts on areas like pension contributions or salaries might have the benefit of reducing spending without directly, uh, without directly impacting police resources or manpower. And it's also important to remember that the counterfactual to these bankruptcy filings isn't a return to fiscal stability. Uh, the control cases are jurisdictions that are under comparable levels of stress to those that filed Chapter 9. But those municipalities would have also presumably continued to flirt with insolvency and would have had to make their own difficult choices, just not under the court-supervised bankruptcy proceedings. Hmm. So, Chuck, does this tell us anything about, say, the bankruptcy experience for municipalities beyond the impact on policing? Well, as far as the public safety uh, issue goes, we're in a time where there's a lot of public pressure for policymakers to shift money away from policing due to social justice concerns. At the same time, state and local governments are seeing dramatic declines in tax revenue due to the COVID-19 pandemic, which is also going to lead to some difficult budgeting choices. So this is, of course, just one study, but it does seem to suggest that even municipalities with limited resources can probably shift some of their budget away from the police departments without compromising public safety. More broadly, I don't think that you can necessarily use these findings to make assumptions about how other public services will fare under municipal bankruptcy. As the authors of the study said, they chose to look at policing specifically because it was the service that appeared to be the highest priority service for stakeholders in the bankruptcy process. So it seems possible that by the time a city or county government is considering filing for Chapter 9, they may have already made cuts to less politically sensitive service sectors, so there may be less leeway to cut in the future. We also don't know to what degree state resources were brought in to substitute for items that were defunded at the local level. But I think the study does offer a blueprint that hopefully other researchers will follow in using this concept of service solvency when looking at other aspects of governing under fiscal stress and bankruptcy. And hopefully that continued research can give us a better sense of how, municip how municipalities can clean up their balance sheets without undermining quality of life issues or, uh, or long-term fiscal sustainability. Very interesting. I, I mean, I who would have thought based on this study that like you said, filing for chapter nine could improve something. That was sort of a, the gist of it, but they're very interesting. Uh, Chuck, uh, before I let you go, I know um, you're um, our DC based reporter and you cover what's going on down in the nation's capital. Uh, before you go, tell us what's going on in terms of the latest with the stimulus uh, the proposed stimulus, because I know in a couple of weeks, uh, the government's going to take the, their long summer break. So give us a latest what's going on down there. Sure. Uh, so the House Democrats, they passed a $3 trillion stimulus bill a couple of months back, and it's really seen no traction in the Senate, which is, of course, uh, under Republican control. This week, we're expecting uh, the, the Republican Senate to introduce their own bill 
that's expected to be around the one trillion, one point three trillion dollar uh, area. So there's going to be a wide gap that Republicans and Democrats are going to need to sort of close in order to get a deal on some badly needed stimulus before they go into that break, which you referenced before. There's going to be a two-week August recess, and when they come back, we're going to be in early September, and that's really the heat of campaign season for, I think, what we're all expecting to be a pretty contentious election. Indeed. I mean, there's, I think, uh, what, 220 alone, 2020 alone is going to be in the record books for various reasons. So, well, yeah, longest year in history. Yeah, <laughs> that's, a, that's a great, <laughs> most interesting and complex uh, uh, year in history. I think it's affected pretty much everybody and, and everyone. So, but Chuck, thank you for your time today. Uh, stay safe, stay cool down there. I know it's very hot and muggy in DC, and we'll hopefully talk to you again soon. Thanks a lot for having me, Jan. Sure, anytime. Bye. And that is our show for today on a hot, summery July day. Uh, many thanks to Greg Clark, our head of research, and Chuck Stanley, our DC based reporter. And thanks to Kristen Ayala, who makes us sound good week after week. But again, as always, thanks to you out there, our listeners, our many, many listeners out there from, which was interesting, around the world. So wherever you're listening from, whether it's in the U.S. or elsewhere in the world. Thank you for your time. Thank you for listening in. Hopefully, you'll tune in next week for the latest on distressed mini debt, on debt wires, the mini lowdown. Take care, everybody, and stay safe out there. Thanks for listening to the mini lowdown with me, your host, Young Lim. If you want to know more, subscribe to debtwire.com and follow us on social media. Please leave comments, rate, like, and share. Join us next week when we talk about the latest in the municipal bond market.